Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra, thank you for listening. This is the last episode before the release of the special bonus uh, story that I'm going to be doing on Patreon. If you are a subscriber at the $10, uh, $10 tier, you will get uh, you will get access to that story. Um, it's uh, it's one of my favorites. I've, I've loved it ever since I first read it. Um, I know I'm being coy about not naming it, but it's going to be all over my Twitter like when I start posting it. So, um, you'll, uh, you'll, you'll know. Um, but I'm, I always keep it quiet for now. Anyway, uh, a special thank you to Mark Vincent and Elder Riley for supporting me on Patreon. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, um, for, uh, for your help there. And, uh, I know this is a stressful time for everybody, but just know that you are important and you matter. And, uh, if you need help, if you feel you're in crisis, Please reach out, find someone to talk to. This the the suicide prevention lifeline is always open and always available. Thank you so much for listening, and let's get into the exciting conclusion of the Wendigo. Seven. A wall of silence wrapped them in, for the snow, though not thick, was sufficient to deaden any noise, and the frost held things pretty tight besides. No sound but their voices and the soft roar of the flames made itself heard. Only, from time to time, something soft as the flutter of a pine moth's wings went past them through the air. No one seemed anxious to go to bed. The hours slipped towards midnight. "'The legend is picturesque enough,' observed the doctor, after one of the longer pauses, speaking to break it rather than because he had anything to say." For the Wendigo is simply the call of the wild personified, which some natures hear to their own destruction. That's about it, Hank said presently, and there's no misunderstanding when you hear it. It calls you by name right enough. Another pause followed. Then Dr. Cathcart came back to the forbidden subject with a rush that made the others jump. The allegory is significant, he remarked, looking about him into the darkness. For the voice, they say, resembles all the minor sounds of the bush— Wind, falling water, cries of the animals, and so forth. And once the victim hears that, he's off for good, of course. His most vulnerable points, moreover, are said to be the feet and the eyes. The feet, you see, for the lust of wandering, and the eyes for the lust of beauty. The poor beggar goes at such a dreadful speed that he bleeds beneath the eyes and his feet burn. Dr. Cathcart, as he spoke, continued to peer uneasily into the surrounding gloom. His voice sank to a hushed tone. The Wendigo, he added, is said to burn his feet, owing to the friction, apparently caused by its tremendous velocity, till they drop off, and new ones form exactly like its own. Simpson listened in horrified amazement, but it was the pallor on Hank's face that fascinated him most. He would willingly have stopped his ears and closed his eyes had he dared. Don't always keep to the ground, neither came in Hank's slow, heavy drawl, for it goes so high that he thinks the stars have set him all afire. It'll take great thumping jumps sometimes and run along the tops of the trees, carrying its partner with it, and then dropping him just as a fish hawk will drop a pickerel to kill it before eating. And its food, of all the muck in the whole bush, is moss. And he laughed a short, unnatural laugh. It's a moss eater is the wendigo, he added, looking up excitedly into the faces of his companions. Moss Eater, he repeated with a string of the most outlandish oaths he could invent. 
But Simpson now understood the true purpose of all this talk. What these two men, each strong and experienced in his own way, dreaded more than anything else, was silence. They were talking against time. They were also talking against darkness, against the invasion of panic, against the admission reflection might bring that they were in an enemy's country, against anything, in fact, rather than allow their inmost thoughts to assume control. He himself, already initiated by the awful vigil with terror, was beyond both of them in this respect. He had reached the stage where he was immune, but these two, the scoffing analytical doctor and the honest dogged backwoodsman, each sat trembling in the depth of his being. Thus the hours passed, and thus with lowered voices and a kind of taut inner resistance of spirit, this little group of humanity sat in the jaws of the wilderness and talked foolishly of the terrible and haunting legend. It was an unequal contest, all things considered, for the wilderness had already the advantage of first attack and of a hostage. The fate of their comrade hung over them with a steadily increasing weight of oppression that finally became insupportable. It was Hank, after a pause longer than the preceding ones that no one seemed to be able to break, who first let loose all this pent-up emotion in very unexpected fashion, by springing suddenly to his feet and letting out the most ear-shattering yell imaginable into the night. He could not contain himself any longer, it seemed. To make it carry even beyond an ordinary cry, he interrupted its rhythm by shaking the palm of his hand before his mouth. "'That's for Defago,' he said, looking down at the other two with a queer, defiant laugh. "'For it's my belief—the sandwiched oaths may be omitted—and my old partner's not far from us at this very minute.' There was a vehemence and recklessness about his performance that made Simpson, too, start to his feet in amazement, and betrayed even the doctor into letting the pipe slip from between his lips. Hank's face was ghastly, but Cathcart showed a sudden weakness— a loosening of all his faculties, as it were. Then a momentary anger blazed into his eyes, and he too, though with a deliberation born of habitual self-control, got upon his feet and faced the excited guide. For this was unpermissible, foolish, dangerous, and he meant to stop it in the bud. What might have happened in the next minute or two one may speculate about, yet never definitely know, for in the instant of profound silence that followed Hank's roaring voice, and as though in answer to it, something went past through the darkness of the sky overhead at terrific speed, something of necessity very large, for it displaced much air, while down between the trees there fell a faint and windy cry of a human voice calling in tones of indescribable anguish and appeal. "'Oh! Oh, this fiery height!' Oh, oh, my feet of fire, my burning feet of fire! White to the very edge of his shirt, Hank looked stupidly about him like a child. Dr. Cathcart uttered some kind of unintelligible cry, turning as he did so with an instinctive movement of blind terror towards the protection of the tent, then halting in the act as though frozen. Simpson, alone of the three, retained his presence of mind a little. His own horror was too deep to allow of any immediate reaction. He had heard that cry before. Turning to his stricken companions, he said almost calmly, "'That's exactly the cry I heard, the very words he used.' Then, lifting his face to the sky, he cried aloud, "'Defago! Defago! Come down here to us! Come down!' 
and before there was time for anybody to take definite action one way or another, there came the sound of something dropping heavily between the trees, striking the branches on the way down, and landing with a dreadful thud upon the frozen earth below. The crash and thunder of it was really terrific. "'That's him, so help me the good God!' came from Hank in a whispering cry, half-choked, his hand going automatically toward the hunting knife in his belt. "'And he's coming! He's coming!' he added with an irrational laugh of horror as the sounds of heavy footsteps crunching over the snow became distinctly audible, approaching through the blackness towards the circle of light. And while the steps, with their stumbling motion, moved nearer and nearer upon them, the three men stood round that fire, motionless and dumb. Dr. Cathcart had the appearance of a man suddenly withered. Even his eyes did not move. Hank, suffering shockingly, seemed on the verge again of violent action, yet did nothing. He, too, was hewn of stone. Like stricken children, they seemed. The picture was hideous. And meanwhile, their owner still invisible, the footsteps came closer, crunching the frozen snow. It was endless, too prolonged to be quite real, this measured and pitiless approach. It was accursed. 8. Then at length the darkness, having thus laboriously conceived, brought forth a figure. It drew forward into the zone of uncertain light where fire and shadows mingled, not ten feet away, then halted, staring at them fixedly. The same instant it started forward again with the spasmodic motion as of a thing moved by wires, and coming up closer to them, full into the glare of the fire, they perceived then that it was a man, and apparently that this man was Defago. Something like a skin of horror almost perceptibly drew down in that moment over every face, and three pairs of eyes shone through it as though they saw across the frontiers of normal vision into the unknown. Defago advanced, his tread faltering and uncertain. He made his way straight up to them as a group first, then turned sharply and peered close into the face of Simpson. The sound of a voice issued from his lips. Here I am, Boss Simpson. I heard someone calling me. It was a faint, dried-up voice, made wheezy and breathless as by immense exertion. I'm having a regular hellfire kind of trip, I am. And he laughed, thrusting his head forward into the other's face. But that laugh started the machinery of the group of waxworks figures with the wax-white skins. Hank immediately sprang forward with a stream of oaths so far-fetched that Simpson did not recognize them as English at all, but thought he had lapsed into Indian or some other lingo. He only realized that Hank's presence, thrust thus between them, was welcome, uncommonly welcome. Dr. Cathcart, though more calmly and leisurely, advanced behind him, heavily stumbling. Simpson seems hazy as to what was actually said and done in those next few seconds, for the eyes of that detestable and blasted visage peering at such close quarters into his own utterly bewildered his senses at first. He merely stood still. He said nothing. He had not the trained will of the older men that forced them into action in defiance of all emotional stress. He watched them moving as behind a glass that half destroyed their reality. It was dreamlike, perverted, 
Yet through the torrent of Hank's meaningless phrases, he remembers hearing his uncle's tone of authority, hard and forced, saying several things about food and warmth, blankets, whiskey, and the rest, and further that whiffs of that penetrating, unaccustomed odor, vile yet sweetly bewildering, assailed his nostrils during all that followed. It was no less a person than himself, however, less experienced and adroit than the others, though he was, who gave instinctive utterance to the sentence that brought a measure of relief into the ghastly situation by expressing the doubt and thought in each one's heart. It is... you? Is, isn't it, Defago? He asked under his breath, horror breaking his speech. And at once, Cathcart burst out with a loud answer before the other had time to move his lips. Of course it is. Of course it is. Only, can't you see, he's nearly dead with exhaustion, cold and terror. Isn't that enough to change a man beyond all recognition? It was said in order to convince himself as much as to convince the others. The overemphasis alone proved that. And continually, while he spoke and acted, he held a handkerchief to his nose. That odor pervaded the whole camp. For the Defago, who sat huddled by the big fire, wrapped in blankets, drinking hot whiskey, and holding food in wasted hands, was no more like the guide they had last seen alive than the picture of a man of sixty is like a daguerreotype of his early youth in the costume of another generation. Nothing really can describe that ghastly caricature, that parody masquerading there in the firelight as Defago. From the ruins of the dark and awful memories he still retains, Simpson declares that the face was more animal than human, the features drawn about into wrong proportions, the skin loose and hanging as though he had been subjected to extraordinary pressures and tensions. It made him think vaguely of those bladder faces blown up by the hawkers on Ludgate Hill that change their expression as they swell and as they collapse amid a faint and wailing imitation of a voice. Both face and voice suggested some such abominable resemblance. But Cathcart, long afterwards seeking to describe the indescribable, asserts that thus might have looked a face and body that had been in air so rarefied that, the weight of atmosphere being removed, the entire structure threatened to fly asunder and became... incoherent. It was Hank though all distraught and shaking with a tearing volume of emotion he could neither handle nor understand, who brought things to a head without much ado. He went off to a little distance from the fire, apparently so that the light should not dazzle him too much, and shading his eyes for a moment with both hands, shouted in a loud voice that held anger and affection dreadfully mingled. "'You ain't Dave Fago! You ain't Dave Fago at all! I don't give a damn, but that ain't you, my old pal of twenty years!' He glared upon the huddled figure as though he would destroy him with his eyes. And if it is, I'll swab the floor of hell with a wad of cotton wool on a toothpick, so help me the good God, he added with a violent fling of horror and disgust. It was impossible to silence him. He stood there, shouting like one possessed, horrible to see, horrible to hear, because it was the truth. He repeated himself in fifty different ways, each more outlandish than the last. The woods rang with echoes. At one time it looked as if he meant to fling himself upon the intruder, for his hand continually jerked towards the long hunting knife in his belt. But in the end, he did nothing, and the whole tempest completed itself very shortly with tears. Hank's voice suddenly broke, 
he collapsed on the ground, and Cathcart somehow or other persuaded him at last to go into the tent and lie quiet. The remainder of the affair, indeed, was witnessed by him from behind the canvas, his white and terrified face peeping through the crack of the tent door flap. Then Dr. Cathcart, closely followed by his nephew, who so far had kept his courage better than all of them, went up with a determined air and stood opposite to the figure of Defago huddled over the fire. He looked him squarely in the face and spoke. At first his voice was firm. Defago, tell us what's happened, just a little, so that we can know how best to help you, he asked in a tone of authority, almost of command, and at that point it was command. At once afterwards, however, it changed in quality, for the figure turned up to him a face so piteous, so terrible, and so little like humanity, that the doctor shrank back from him as from something spiritually unclean. Simpson, watching close behind him, says he got the impression of a mask that was on the verge of dropping off, and that underneath they would discover something black and diabolical, revealed in utter nakedness. "'Out with it, man! Out with it!' Cathcart cried, terror running neck and neck with entreaty. "'None of us can stand this much longer!' It was the cry of instinct over reason. And then Dave Fago, smiling whitely, answered in that thin and fading voice that already seemed passing over into a sound of quite another character. "'I seen that great wendigo thing,' he whispered, sniffing the air about him exactly like an animal. "'I been with it, too.' Whether the poor devil would have said more, or whether Dr. Cathcart would have continued the impossible cross-examination, cannot be known. For at that moment, the voice of Hank was heard yelling at the top of his voice from behind the canvas that concealed all but his terrified eyes. Such a howling was never heard. His feet! Oh, God, his feet! Look at his great changed feet! Defago, shuffling where he sat, had moved in such a way that for the first time, his legs were in full light and his feet were visible. Yet Simpson had no time himself to see properly what Hank had seen, and Hank had never seen fit to tell. That same instant, with a leap like that of a frightened tiger, Cathcart was upon him, bundling the folds of blanket about his legs with such speed that the young student caught little more than a passing glimpse of something dark and oddly masked where moccasin feet ought to have been, and saw even that but with uncertain vision. Then, before the doctor had time to do more, or Simpson time to even think a question, much less ask it, Defago was standing upright in front of them, balancing with pain and difficulty, and upon his shapeless and twisted visage an expression so dark and so malicious that it was, in the true sense, monstrous. "'Now you've seen it, too,' he wheezed. "'You've seen my fiery, burning feet. "'And now—' That is, unless you can save me and prevent. It's about time for... His piteous and beseeching voice was interrupted by a sound that was like the roar of wind coming across the lake. The trees overhead shook their tangled branches. The blazing fire bent its flame as before a blast, and something swept with a terrific rushing noise about the little camp and seemed to surround it entirely in a single moment of time. Defago shook the clinging blankets from his body, turned towards the woods behind, and with the same stumbling motion that had brought him, was gone. Gone before anyone could move muscles to prevent him. Gone with an amazing and blundering swiftness that left no time to act. 
The darkness positively swallowed him, and less than a dozen seconds later, above the roar of the swaying trees and the shout of the sudden wind, all three men, watching and listening with stricken hearts, heard a cry that seemed to drop down upon them from a great height of sky and distance. Oh, oh, this fiery height! Oh, oh, my feet of fire! My burning feet of fire! Then died away into untold space and silence. Dr. Cathcart, suddenly master of himself and therefore of the others, was just able to seize Hank violently by the arm as he tried to dash headlong into the bush. But I want her know, shrieked the guy, and I want her see. That ain't him at all, but some devil that shunted into his place. Somehow or other, he admits he never quite knew how he accomplished it, he managed to keep him in the tent and pacify him. The doctor, apparently, had reached the stage where a reaction had set in and allowed his own innate force to conquer. Certainly, he managed Hank admirably. It was his nephew, however, hitherto so wonderfully controlled, who gave him most cause for anxiety, for the cumulative strain had now produced a condition of lachrymose hysteria which made it necessary to isolate him upon a bed of boughs and blankets as far removed from Hank as was possible under the circumstances. And there he lay, as the watches of that haunted night passed over the lonely camp, crying startled sentences and fragments of sentences into the folds of his blanket. A quantity of gibberish about speed and height and fire mingled oddly with biblical memories of the classroom. People with broken faces, all on fire, or coming at a most awful, awful pace towards the camp, he would moan one minute, and the next would sit up and stare into the woods, intently listening, and whisper, How terrible in the wilderness are, are the feet of them that... Until his uncle came across to change the direction of his thoughts and comfort him. The hysteria fortunately proved but temporary. Sleep cured him, just as it cured Hank. Till the first signs of daylight came soon after five o'clock, Dr. Cathcart kept his vigil. His face was the color of chalk, and there were strange flushes beneath the eyes. An appalling terror of the soul battled with his will all through those silent hours. These were some of the outer signs. At dawn he lit the fire himself, made breakfast and woke the others, and by seven they were well on their way back to the home camp, three perplexed and afflicted men, but each in his own way having reduced his inner turmoil to a condition of more or less systemized order again. 9. They talked little, and then only of the most wholesome and common things, for their minds were charged with painful thoughts that clamored for explanation, though no one dared refer to them. Hank, being nearest to primitive conditions, was the first to find himself, for he was also less complex. In Dr. Cathcart, civilization championed his forces against an attack singular enough. To this day, perhaps, he is not quite sure of certain things. Anyhow, he took longer to find himself. Simpson, the student of divinity it was, who arranged his conclusions probably with the best, though not most scientific, appearance of order. Out there, in the heart of unreclaimed wilderness, they had surely witnessed something crudely and essentially primitive. Something that had survived somehow the advance of humanity, had emerged terrifically, betraying a scale of life still monstrous and immature. He envisaged it rather as a glimpse into prehistoric ages, 
when superstitions, gigantic and uncouth, still oppressed the hearts of men, when the forces of nature were still untamed, the powers that may have haunted a primeval universe not yet withdrawn. To this day he thinks of what he termed years later in a sermon savage and formidable potencies lurking behind the souls of men, not evil perhaps in themselves, yet instinctively hostile to humanity as it exists. With his uncle, he never discussed the matter in detail, for the barrier between the two types of mind made it difficult. Only once, years later, something led them to the frontier of the subject, of a single detail of the subject, rather. Can you even tell me what they were like? he asked, and the reply, though conceived in wisdom, was not encouraging. It is far better you should not try to know or to find out. Well, that odor, persisted the nephew. What do you make of it? Dr. Cathcart looked at him and raised his eyebrows. Odors, he replied, are not so easy as sounds and sights of telepathic communication. I make as much or as little probably as you do yourself. He was not quite so glib as usual with his explanations. That was all. At the fall of day, cold, exhausted, famished, the party came to the end of the long portage and dragged themselves into a camp that at first glimpse seemed empty. Fire there was none, and no punk came forward to welcome them. The emotional capacity of all three was too overspent to recognize either surprise or annoyance, but the cry of spontaneous affection that burst from the lips of Hank as he rushed ahead of them towards the fireplace came probably as a warning that the end of the amazing affair was not quite yet. And both Cathcart and his nephew confessed afterwards that when they saw him kneel down in his excitement and embrace something that reclined, gently moving beside the extinguished ashes, they felt in their very bones that this something would prove to be Defago, the true Defago, returned. And so, indeed, it was. It is soon told. Exhausted to the point of emaciation, the French-Canadian, what was left of him, that is, fumbled among the ashes, trying to make a fire. His body crouched there, the weak fingers obeying feebly the instinctive habit of a lifetime with twigs and matches. But there was no longer any mind to direct the simple operation. The mind had fled beyond recall, and with it, too, had fled memory. Not only recent events, but all previous life was a blank. This time it was the real man, though incredibly and horribly shrunken. On his face was no expression of any kind whatsoever, fear, welcome, or recognition. He did not seem to know who it was that embraced him, or who it was that fed, warmed, and spoke to him the words of comfort and relief. Forlorn and broken beyond all reach of human aid, the little man did meekly as he was bidden. The something that had constituted him individual had vanished forever. In some ways, it was more terribly moving than anything they had yet seen. That idiot smile as he drew wads of coarse moth from his swollen cheeks and told them that he was a damned moss-eater. The continued vomiting of even the simplest food, and worst of all, the piteous and childish voice of complaint in which he told them that his feet pained him, burned like fire, 
which was natural enough when Dr. Cathcart examined them and found that both were dreadfully frozen. Beneath the eyes, there were faint indications of recent bleeding. The details of how he survived the prolonged exposure, of where he had been or of how he covered the great distance from one camp to the other, including an immense detour of the lake on foot since he had no canoe, all this remains unknown. His memory had vanished completely. And before the end of the winter, whose beginning witnessed this strange occurrence, De Fago, bereft of mind, memory, and soul, had gone with it. He lingered only a few weeks. And what Punk was able to contribute to the story throws no further light upon it. He was cleaning fish by the lake shore about five o'clock in the evening, an hour, that is, before the search party returned, when he saw this shadow of the guide picking its way weakly into camp. In advance of him, he declares, came the faint whiff of a certain singular odor. That same instant, old Punk started for home. He covered the entire journey of three days as only Indian blood could have covered it. The terror of a whole race drove him. He knew what it all meant. De Fago had seen the Wendigo. And that is the end of The Wendigo by Algernon Blackwood. Thank you all so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Um, I don't think I mentioned it. I don't really remember mentioning it. Um, but uh, I, I passed a couple weeks ago 200,000 downloads. So thank you all so much uh, for listening. That number is a little bit on the fake side. That's not that's not real because back in February, I accidentally YouTubed my entire back catalog into everybody's feed and I'm really sorry about that um but uh so it's about 20,000 off so I need to get to like 220,000 to get an actual you know 200,000 but I passed the number of 200,000 so that's really great thank you all so much for listening um I did not think I didn't know if I was going to make it in a year or so but um I made it uh back in mid-August and um you know and considering that I passed 100,000 back in uh uh the beginning of near the near the beginning of January I thought there's a slight chance I'll make it before the end of the year and I made it by, by you know two-thirds of the year so like that was awesome thank you all so much I really appreciate it um please check out Into the Black by William Meikle the audiobook read by me uh it's on audible.com uh just do a search for Into the Black by William Meikle do a search for my name Mike Queller C U E L L A R and, uh, and you'll find it. It's just going to be right there. It's, uh, it's 14 stories of Lovecraftian horror. Uh, I love it. Uh, I thought all the stories were great. Please check it out. Um, support me on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash the weird tales podcast. Uh, we have just a $1 general support tier. Uh, I've got a $3 tier that gets you a shout out on the show. And I've got a $10 tier that gets you, um, a bonus story. Uh, it's actually a, a, a fairly long novel that's going to be going for a long time. So this story is going to be around for a little while. Um, and it's, uh, all going to be up on this, on this, uh, on the $10 Patreon tier. So, Thank you all so much for listening. I really appreciate it. And uh, I will see you next week. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Here's the bloops. For the eyes of that detestable and blasted visage peered at such close quarters into his own. Utterly...
For the eyes of that detestable and blasted visage peered at such close quarters into his own utterly... Okay, it's because I'm reading the wrong word. It's not peered, it's peering. And that makes the sentence make sense. And if you know how to read, it's not an issue. I'm just a dummy. It was Hank, though all distraught and shaking with a tearing voice of emotion he could neither handle... That's, that word is volume. That word is not voice. That word is volume. So let's try that again. <clears throat> 